We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, whenever there has been movements in the history of the church where, for whatever the reason, well, not for whatever the reason, individuals' faith has deepened, this letter has been part of it. We're going to be working our way through it. And as we've said, letters are like two-way communications. It's like listening to someone talking on the phone. Before we listen to what Paul says on one side of the line, let's remind ourselves of what's happening on the other side of the line, what's happening in first century Rome. Um, what we've discussed is that Jews constituted about 10% of the Roman Empire. Jewish Christians were flushed out of uh, Jerusalem and found their way into the Roman Empire. And in general, uh, Jewish belief in one God was something that many Romans saw as kind of advanced in the polytheism, all the ins and outs of their gods. Jews' monotheism seemed sane. And in contrast to the moral depravity of Rome, Jewish morality seemed sane as well. Um, however, what ended up happening as Jewish Christians and Jews came together in locales, they ended up butting heads. And this happened to such a degree that one of the emperors then in the early part of the fifth decade, about the early 40s, said, that's it. And he expelled Jews out of Rome, both Jews and Jewish Christians. And um, five years later, with the crowning of a new emperor, Jews are once again returning to Rome. And Paul writes this letter to the church about one to three years after that occurred. With that in mind, and, and so what's happening then is Gentile Christians had been governing themselves. And now Jewish Christians are coming back in. And what we're going to hear, knowing that's what's happening, this is what Paul ends up saying. Um, and if you follow along with me, let's pick it up in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Again, when you hear it, think about why is he saying this? It's one of the interesting things about the Bible. Why is he saying what he's saying? Because he's responding to something on the other side of the line. Let's, let's read. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value 
if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. What's saying, Paul is echoing what is being heard by Gentile believers in the church, again, with the return of Jewish Christians to their house churches. Um, he's echoing the very language which was being expressed, which they were, were hearing. Uh, we know and his will and approve what is excellent, and we are instructed from the law, and we are a guide to the blind, and we are a light to those who are in darkness, and we are instructors of the foolish, and we are teachers of children. As a Pharisee, Paul would have said the same words to individuals around him. And it's and Paul is not dismissing that this is in some way true. It's the arrogance. It's the attitude, the condescending, better than you, self-righteousness that accompanies it. That's what Paul is putting his finger on. Jews believe that receiving the commandments made them superior to pagan Gentiles. They had a divine law, and they believed that having that divine law made them nearer and dearer to God. Okay, And receiving the Mosaic law, they felt, gave them not merely the right, but the responsibility to judge others. And that's what happened in this letter. Paul has some direct things to say about Greco-Roman pagan morality. It was decadent in Rome. Surprisingly, in this letter, Paul does speak to Gentile issues, but he spends more time confronting those whose morality exceeds that of their Gentile neighbors. Paul spends more time addressing Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. He buttonholes the Jews, the moral, the sacred, those who are Christians. Um, again, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. From a Jewish perspective, the world is divided into two groups of people. There's Jews and there's everyone else. Everyone else are described by Jews as Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. As apostle to the Gentiles, you would imagine that Paul would be more careful, focused 
on Gentiles. Interestingly, and we'll understand why, Paul is more concerned about Jewish Christians. He and those are the ones that he is trying to to deal with. Um, there are four groups then, if you think of Jews and Gentiles. Okay, the Gentiles are non-Jews. There's Gentile unbelievers, right, and Gentile believers in Christ. Then there's Jewish unbelievers. They don't believe in Christ as the Messiah. They're the vast majority of Jews. And Jewish Christians, they are in the minority. Um, in Romans, what Paul is doing, and this will help us understand why he writes what he writes, he is strengthening Jewish believers to resist the influence of their unbelieving Jewish countrymen. Um, why would he do this? We're going to talk about why, but let's discuss. This would be a very difficult task. Now, how many of you have Bibles? If this was the early church and this question was asked, how many of you had Bibles, perhaps no one's hand would go up. Bibles were expensive. They were written on parchment and vellum. They were in scrolls, and there was only one Bible at the time. The 30, the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's, that's all they had. So, your source of information was the Bible, the Old Testament. And the, these Bibles then were found in Jewish synagogues. So, for you to get the information that you needed, that's where the information comes from. And it comes through those who are Jewish. Now, Jewish Christians would have some understanding about the Jewish Bible. And as Gentile believers, you would look to Jewish believers and say, what does that mean? There's, I, it talks about this, that, can you imagine if the only Bible you had was the 39 books of the Old Testament? And you're trying to build a case for understanding Jesus? Understanding grace? Do you understand what that would be like? Be very difficult. And what you would do is you would go to your, those in the church who were Jews and say, how does this apply today? You know, this thing, God killing this and that and this white, wiping. How does that, is, does God still do that today? And you would address these questions to Jewish believers. And if they had good answers, it would make sense to you. And if they didn't, You'd be confused, but that's 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 the deal. Paul strengthens Jewish believers in order to defend Jewish Gentile believers. This is why Paul judges Jewish Christian judgment. That's what he's doing here. He's judging judgment. He's talking to the Jewish believers and imploring them: Don't point your finger at your Gentile. Brothers and sisters, they don't need your fingers, they need your explanation. They need for you to help them develop the obedience of faith. Help them to understand what to believe. They're confused. They hear this and they hear that. They're getting pulled in each and every direction. They're looking to you. Tell them the truth. Don't just condemn them because they're not as moral as you are. That's what Paul is trying to accomplish here. Um, it's why he says in chapter 2, verse 1, very strong. Therefore, you who you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. 
because you who judge practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and then do them themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, Jewish Christians were want to believe that because they had, now they, of course they're not perfect, but having the law made them nearer and dearer to God. And they felt like he excused their imperfections because they had the law. Um, and what, is, what Paul tries to do with them, and he speaks to them directly, but he's trying to get them to clarify fruit issues and root issues. Root issues. Let's talk about root issues. To be sure, um, Rome is morally decadent. It really was homosexuality, heterosexuality. It was a mess. And Paul exposes their immorality at the end of the first chapter. He indicates, however, that immorality is the fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. Again, Paul indicates what he believed. Their immorality was the fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. And but, but but he says, let me just read. Um, he says, for although they knew God, he's describing people in general. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They should have recognized things about God from creation. They kind of tuned it out. And it's describing what happened when they tuned that out. He Then he goes on, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What Jews would have said is sexual immorality is the reason for God's judgment. And that's why things are happening that are happening to you and to Rome as a whole. Paul says that's wrong. It's wrong. Sexual immorality, Paul writes at this time, is not the reason for God's judgment. It's the result of it. God's saying taking out the moral brake pads. If you're not going to recognize the clear indication of a creator in the creation, he cuts the brake line so that just say no approaches to morality don't work anymore. They can't just say no. Their mind has become ineffective in allowing and directing them to make good, sane, moral choices. What God gives them over to is moral, spiritual, sexual insanity. No breaks. And the reason he does that is because they don't recognize him as creator. And it's something, okay, he takes the moral breaks off and says, okay, live your life in a animalistic kind of way. Why? Perhaps they'll come to the end of their road and turn around to him and recognize him and look at him and say, you know what? The way things are created, there has to be a God behind this. Things like this don't just evolve. It doesn't just get thrown together. Um, 
we find the same dynamic earlier in Israel's history where there was moral issues, were moral issues, and Isaiah talks about why those moral issues exist. Look what it says in Isaiah 59. It's in your worship folder. He describes Jewish culture. Listen to this. There were moral flatlining. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It describes what's happening. There was a complete absence of virtue. Truth, righteousness, it just, you can't find it. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. And then, listen to what it says. The Lord saw it and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered. Wondered is a light word. The word is more appalled. It is a stronger reaction than displeased. That's what we know. Displeased is a more mild reaction. This word, wondered, appalled, is a stronger reaction. God looked at the moral depravity and said, I don't like that. He looked at something else and said, that appalls me. What is it that appalls God? Not just displeases him. That's what it says. Um, it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered, was appalled, that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his uprightness held him. The word for intercede here is the word that describes meeting somebody. When Jacob went to meet Esau, this is the word that was used. It's encountering someone, meeting someone. So here's what it says. God's displeased that there was no justice, but he looks, and there's no one meeting people on his behalf. He dispatched prophets, priests, and kings to say his words to people. But there's no one doing it. No one is saying what God told them to say. And so when God looks at culture and says, of course it's like that. It's dark because there's no light. I've, I've sent people to say things and they're not saying them. There's darkness because my word is not there. Or if it's there, it's hidden. That's what he says. And that's what appalled him. That's what appalled him. Darkness is, what's darkness? The absence of light. God would see his word as light. Those who bring that word as couriers of light. That's what appalls God. Those tasked to bring light aren't doing so. And in Israel's time and in Rome's time, Rather than bring the good news, pointing fingers at the moral depravity of the culture around them. And that's why Paul addresses those who know the message and he appeals to them. Tell your brothers and sisters the good news. 
Don't just point out how immoral they are. Of course they're immoral. They're in the dark. Illumine them. Help them to understand who I am. Goes on. This being the problem, look what it says in verse 20. When God talks about how he's going to fix the problem. Now, what's the problem? Is the problem the immorality? That's the that's the fruit of the problem. What's the root of the problem? There's no one speaking the words of God. That's the root of the problem. Now, let's look at how God fixes the problem. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with him, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth is talking about the Redeemer. He's saying with this Redeemer, I'm going to put my spirit on the Redeemer. I'm going to put my words in his mouth. And then it says, and... uh And the words shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. Okay, God is displeased that there's no justice. Again, the lack of justice is the fruit issue, not the root issue. No one to intercede. That's the issue. Um, When God puts spirit words into the mouth of the Redeemer and into the mouths of the children of the Redeemer and the children of the children of the Redeemer, That fixes the problem, the root problem. And let's move forward eight centuries then. Paul, Isaiah prophesied about eight centuries before Christ came. Here's what Paul knew. He knew that Jesus was this Redeemer. He knew it. The one on whom God put the Spirit, and in whose mouth put Spirit words. Not only did he know that, he knew that the Redeemer had kids. Who are those kids? Jewish Christians at the time. Apostles in particular. Jewish Christians in general. So Paul is appealing to these in whom God's mouth put spirit words, say the spirit words to them. That's what needs to happen. That's the root of the problem. Morality, that's the fruit of the problem. And that's what Paul is attempting to do in the letter to the Romans. It's just a wonderful letter. We're going to learn so much. It's the way he describes the problem, the way he describes the solution. It just starts to line everything up. You end up going, oh, I get it. I get it now. That's what we're going to find as we go through this letter. Um, Paul believes that Jesus is Redeemer and that children of God, at this time Jewish Christians, who were the first, they were the first responders. The first ones to embrace Jesus. They went out into the Roman Empire. They're the ones who are the children of the Redeemer. And Paul is tasking them, say the spirit words. 
Say the words that Jesus has placed. Jesus said, and he's, his point is, don't put, don't put them under the old covenant. Jesus brings a new covenant. The gospel is the new covenant. The spirit words are not the old covenant. Do this and God will bless you. Do this and that, he will curse you. That's not, those aren't the spirit words. Those aren't the spirit words. The spirit words are, I will put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. The new covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. The new covenant. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's the spirit words. For I will forgive their wickednesses and remember their sins no more. Those are the spirit words. And what Paul is telling Jewish brethren, say those words. Tell, say, say those words to them. That's what he's trying to do. Paul's point is, well, look what he says in verse 26 of Romans 2. Um, so if a man who is circum- uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Uncircumcision is what a Gentile is characterized by. Circumcision is what a Jew is characterized by on a physical basis. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and uncircumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Again, Jesus is not, I mean, excuse me, Paul is not saying that there's no Judaism anymore. There is. But at the time, he's differentiating between Jews who understood and embraced the new covenant and Jews who didn't. And what he's saying, the true Jews are those who recognize Christ as the Messiah. Now, it wasn't God's intent that most of the Jews would do so. What we'll find in Romans 11, Paul will talk all about that. He kind of hardened the heart of most Jews. It wasn't just about their resistance to Christ. That was purposed. And again, we'll look at that. And it'll make all kinds of sense to us when we get there. God purposed to keep some Jews in the dark. Because you know what ended up happening? When a minority of the Jews embraced Christ as Messiah, do you know what their countrymen who rejected that did? (laughs) They kicked them out of Israel. And if we looked horizontally, they're leaving and they're beaten and they're bloodied and they're sad and they're leaving their neighborhood and their livelihood. If we looked at it from God's perspective, you know what it looks like? Sowing seeds. Sowing seeds in Rome and in Corinth and in Philippi and Thessalonica. What seeds? Jewish Christians. What are they going to do? They're going to bring the spirit words. They're going to plant the spirit words in among Gentiles, and Gentiles are going to hear them. And when they hear them, you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen is what Ezekiel promised would happen. What Ezekiel says, I will take you from the nation and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When God sends the children of the Redeemer into the Roman Empire, they go there with spirit words. And when Gentiles listen to these spirit words and begin to believe them, their heart changes. And they begin to be able to do the things the commandments urge them to do. Somebody put it this way. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly. It gives me wings. That's what the gospel does when we hear it, internalize it, believe it. God writes his law on our heart changes us from the inside. That's what Paul understands. The writing on the law on the heart is something that God does when people believe the good news of the new covenant. And you know what Paul could see? In the church at Rome, it was working. And then the Jewish brethren came back in, and they lost perspective, and he's trying to put them back on task. Don't forget the spirit words he's saying to his brothers. Spirit words aren't judging words. They're new covenant words. Application. A couple things as we kind of close this. Okay, here we go. I'll get there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Um, this is what Paul understands. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the means whereby when spirit words come and they're heard and we believe them, it changes us. Um, Thoreau said there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. You can change people by hacking at branches, addressing behaviors. But if you get to the root of an issue, all the behaviors change. How does God get to the root of the issue? He doesn't point primarily to behavior. You know what he would have you do? Understand what the new covenant is. internalize spirit words. They're not judging words. And you might say, Mike, if I don't get judged, I'm not going to change. That is wrong. When you understand you're not judged, that's what will change you. That's what Paul understood. Your heart will change. And again, this is not something that happens quickly. It takes time. That's what Paul understood. He didn't want his Jewish brethren to be impatient. Don't be impatient with them. They don't know. They've never seen Bibles. They've never had access to them. 
He's trying to urge patience. It takes time to believe new covenant. Um, Paul understood we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The nations are the Gentiles. And what Paul understood were bringing about the obedience of faith. To think the right things first. When you think the right things and that thinking becomes deep, it will change your heart. That's the way it works. Be gentle with yourself. It takes time to believe the right thing. God is not in a hurry. He's not impatient with you. He understands that deep change takes time. Can I say that again? God is not disappointed in you. He understands that change takes time, especially in a time where covenant clarity doesn't exist many places. Okay. Um, The problem, we've talked about this, and we'll close with this. The world cannot believe, behold, what the church does not reflect. Do you remember when it talked about the Redeemer? And spirit words that the Redeemer has and that the Redeemer has kids and the children of the Redeemer are the ones to proclaim spirit words. Who are the children of the Redeemer? I'm looking at them. I'm looking at the children of the Redeemer. Do you know what they need to understand? Spirit words. It's going to change their heart and it will take time. It takes time for us, doesn't it? How many of you are perfect? None of us. The good news, we don't have to be. Spirit words, new covenant words are given to people who are imperfect. So, what does that mean? Keep coming back. Because you know why? The world cannot behold what the church does not reflect. And the church cannot reflect what the church does not behold. Some people look at the cross and see judgment. Paul looked at the cross, you know what he saw? A redeemer with spirit words. And kids. Right, come on up and sing a closing song. Father, you tell us, let us not love with words or with tongue, but in actions and in truth. And that's what fruit looks like. Not always words, but Deeds. However, the means by which those, that fruit becomes evidenced, that does include words. We have to think about them, not necessarily propel them at other people, but internalize them ourselves, especially spirit words.
Redeemer words, New Covenant words, as those words sink deep into our heart, it changes our heart. And it doesn't just give us the ability to say things, but express love, express our faith through love. That's really what transformation is all about. So I ask that week by week, by week, by week, by week, we'll see the truth a little bit clearer. The roots of it will go a little bit deeper. You're not in a hurry. It takes time for the mind to change. I pray that our mind would change, that new covenant spirit thoughts would replace the ones that you no longer operate by. And as they do, we find you writing on our heart and our life transforming, expressing our faith through love in Jesus' name. Amen.